Now, we're flesh and blood human beings. The Bible says we're made in the image of God. That we're flesh, we're subject to death. And we certainly do not have, if we have to any degree of all, we certainly do not have the, to the degree the kind of attributes that God has. So today I'm going to talk about some of God's attributes. There are many, many that could be covered, but I'm going to cover about seven of them I think should be sufficient for a sermon today because they're certainly outstanding attributes and they do really show, give us an idea of what God is like. Now we know from John 4, verse number 24, that God is a spirit. So he's not flesh and blood and uh, he... Um, is not subject to the various um, laws that regulate us here on this earth. Uh, we're mass, that is, we have weight and occupied space. And no one can really define God, uh, even in respect to when it says here, God is a spirit, because what does that really mean and how does it apply to God? And as, as we read in 1 Timothy 1, verse number 17, 1 Timothy 1, verse 17. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible to God. That is, to God who alone is wise. That is, to God who alone is wise be honor and glory forever and ever. So um, let's just look at some of these, uh, these attributes that are intrinsic to God's nature which uh, we don't really have, uh, except maybe to a limited degree, and maybe as we grow in grace and in knowledge to a greater degree. The first one I want to take a look at here is law and order. Now, have you ever thought for a moment about God? And, uh, and when, if you stop and consider, what makes God God? Why is he the way he is? See, we, there's no way we can define that. And we know why, we're, why we act the way we do and why we are the way we are because we were made with human nature. And human nature is not God's nature. Uh, we'll see here that uh, the primary purpose of, of God for man is to change man's nature so that he can become like God. But if we go here to Psalm 78... And verse number five, and there are a number of passages in the Bible. I'm just uh, selecting a few at random here that seem to be the most appropriate. In uh, Psalm 78 and verse number five, he established a testimony in Jacob, and he appointed in law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make known to their children. So the first codified law we have that came down in a codified form was when Moses gave it to the Israelites on Mount Sinai. Now we know from looking back in the Old Testament, we can find that every single one of those laws were violated before they ever came to Mount Sinai. And the beginning of law, as far as God is concerned, began with man. Why do we have a God of law and order when we're supposed to have law and order in this world in order to have a degree of uh, security and uh, how much can we rely on, on law and order? 
You know, it's a known fact that if, uh, I forget what the actual percentage is, I think it's even as, as, as low as 30%. It might be 50%, but I, as I recall, I think 30, 30%. If 30% of the population be, refuses to abide by the law, it's unenforceable. So this is a condition we have here on the earth. So we read here, God gave this law, and going back here to Genesis, the second chapter, here's the very first thing we read about law. Genesis 2, verse number 16. The Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat thereof you shall surely die. God gave a command and set in motion a law. It had to do with several things, but certainly coveting was one of them. That law of coveting was later given in the codified form. Now, of course, so we're all familiar with uh, the standard uh, teaching and uh, what we call churchianity today that, uh, quote, the law is done away. Jesus didn't say that. What happens is that uh, they try to interpret the rest of the Bible by Paul's writings. You can't do that. Peter said that even Paul's in his day, and he was familiar with Paul. He said that Paul was difficult to understand, which they that are unlearned rest. They rest the scriptures. So rather than taking the clear-cut passages of, that are not questionable at all, and interpreting Paul on that basis, they do exactly the opposite. So they have this notion in their minds that Paul came along and did away with the law. He came along and introduced a whole new dispensation, freedom away from Judaism and the law. And so now all we have to do is accept Christ. But Jesus said, do not think. Matthew, 7, verse, uh, Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to make full. That's what the Greek meaning is, to fill it up. That's why it says he'll magnify the law. It says back in Isaiah he's going to magnify the law and make it holy. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will in no means pass from the law till all may be being fulfilled. You know, when, when man has been changed into God and becomes a member of the God family, there won't be any need for a law. Why? His very nature will be law, as God's nature is now. And yet, what is our nature? It's lawlessness to a large extent. The only reason we're able to understand and comprehend is because we've given and been given a measure of the truth, and we know what's expected of us, and with God's help, we can live it to a measurable, de measurably degree. But even quite often, we still fall flat on our faces, don't we? Now, as far as uh, Jesus' statement, that certainly is true. Now, we can go beyond that because let's notice what we read concerning the millennium. It's not going to be done away. Hosea 4 and verse number 2. Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. We will walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth. As long as you have human beings on this earth, God's law is in effect. But God's law represents 
one of God's very, very important attributes. He is a God of law. Law and order. Uh, this law is a magnificent law. In fact, we even uh, noticed it if we were paying attention to some of the songs we sang uh, be before the sermon started. But in Psalm 119 and verse number 96, we read, I have seen the consummation of all perfection. So looking at things physically, he's, he's seen in God's creation perfection completed. But notice what he says. But your commandment is exceeding broad. Exceeding broad. So it is uh, all encompassing and it's intended to meet all of man's needs and purposes regardless of the time period in which he lives and it is applicable in every given situation. In Romans 7 verse number 12 Paul said therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. So keep in mind, one of the primary attributes of God is that he is a God of law and order by his very nature. He couldn't be anything other than that. Now the second thing is his holiness. He's holy. Now what do we mean by the word holy? Well, let me read here a statement from uh, Unger's Bible Dictionary. Holiness means separation or setting apart. God is set apart. Now, what does it mean? It's a general term to indicate sanctity or separation from all that is sinful, impure, or morally imperfect. It is moral wholeness. Have you thought about this for a second? What would God be like if he has all the power, he had all the power he had, and would be like the devil. Lawless, impure. You can look at some of the very terrible things that are being done in this world today, and particularly in some third world nations uh, where they have very little knowledge of God, and you have to conclude they're, they're demon-inspired. But God is holy. Holiness of God. Holiness is one of the essential attributes of the divine nature. It is, on the one hand, entire freedom from moral evil, and on the other, absolute moral perfection. The scriptures lay great stress on this attribute. <coughs> by, by the holiness of God... <coughs> It is not implied that he is subject to some law or standard of moral excellence external to himself. He's not subject to it. Why? All that, all moral law and perfection have their eternal and unchangeable basis in his own nature. Now, we don't have that, do we? He is the one on whom these eternal sanctitudes reside, who is himself the root and ground of them all. In this sense, it can be said without qualification, there is none holy like the Lord. The holiness of God is set before us in the scriptures as of great practical consequence. It's a special ground of reverence, awe, and adoration. It's a standard of all holiness. It implies necessarily 
the divine opposition to and the condemnation of sin. Now, I said a few moments ago that God is a God of law and order. What is sin? Sin is lawlessness. Sin is the opposite of law. So if we read here that of necessity before them the highest end of their aspiration, hope, and endeavors. In other words, it has been made known and revealed to us that this is what we're striving to attain. Holiness. Separation from sin. Now we have, as it pointed out there in that comment by Unger's Bible Dictionary, we have, of course, um, a number of passages that illustrate God's holiness. I'll just read a few of them to you. Keep in mind that when we're reading them, reading these, it means separate, separate, completely separate and differentiated from sin. Romans 15 and verse number 4. Who shall not fear you, O God, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. God is the only one that's holy. Now, when I use the word God, I have to be talking of a uniplural because that's a usage in the Old Testament. So um, uh, certainly that would in include God, and the, God the Father and the Son. Uh, we don't know of any more that the Bible reveals in that, but we certainly know what we'll see here in a moment, what God has intended for man in that regard. 1 Samuel 2 and verse number 2, this is a passage that they, uh, they mentioned in the article, but I didn't read it there, so let's notice it here. 1 Samuel 2, verse 2, no one is holy like the Lord. No one. No human being, no angel, no spirit being is holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. So God is uh, by his very nature and by his very essence separate and holy from the rest of the creation. Psalm 111 and verse number 9. He sent his redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and reverend is his name. His name is what's reverend. That's one of the main reasons the Bible gives us the third command. You should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And uh, that's even not a best translation because, uh, let me see if I got a note here. Uh, sometimes I forget to... Uh, exactly uh, uh, how these things should be translated but um, um, I think the word take is actually meaning you should not use it in any manner you shall not use it in any manner and in vain means thoughtlessly lightly to say it by a rote unthinkingly or in profanity and how often do you hear it used in profanity? You've got to mingle with the world. You're not to do that. Why? Because he's so holy. 
And that is an absolute misappropriation and blasphemy and one of the violations of the Ten Commandments. 1 Peter 1, verses 15 and 16. I said a few minutes ago that uh, the, I read from that uh, particular paper there that uh, man, this is one of man's, should be one of man's aspirations. But the problem is you can't be self-holy. There are people who put on airs and act holy. That is not what holiness is. If it truly is holiness, it's inspired of God. And it's not something that's forced and put on. So as Peter wrote here, 1 Peter 1, verses 15 and 16, He who has called you, as he who has called you is holy, be also, you also be holy in all your conduct. Separate, free from sin is what it really means. Because as it is written, be holy, for I am holy. So this is what man should be achieve, uh, attempting to achieve. And to carry this one step further, as we read in Hebrews 12, verse number 14, Pursue peace with all people and holiness. Pursue it, without which no one will see the Lord. No one will see the Lord without it. So that's why it's important to recognize what holiness is and to strive to attain that with God's help and with his inspiration. You can't achieve it on your own. Now, what's another one of God's attributes? Perfection. He's perfect. Notice uh, in uh, New Unger, the New Unger Bible Dictionary once again here, in rendering of several Hebrew and Greek words, the fundamental idea is that of completeness. It's complete. Absolute perfection is an attribute of God alone. In the highest sense, he alone is complete or wanting nothing. His perfection is eternal and without defect. Just stop and think what kind of a God we're worshiping. Why is God the way he is? Who can explain that? But that's the difference between God and man. It is the ground and standard, listen to this, it is the ground and standard of all other perfection. A relative perfection is also ascribed to God's works. It is either ascribed to men or required of them. Remember what he said? Oh, have you seen my servant Job? He's a perfect man and walks upright. As much as was required of him at this level through which we're living in the flesh, he was a perfect man. So it's ascribed to them. It is either ascribed or required. By this, it meant complete conformity to those requirements as to character and conduct that God has appointed. But this is constantly to, to be borne in mind as reference to the gracious government of God that takes into account man's present debilitated condition. That's why the Bible says he knows our frame and he knows our weaknesses. But the problem is we succumb to those weaknesses because we don't stay close to God. 
We don't pray. We don't have contact with God. And so when some situation comes up, we just give in to the pulls of the flesh. They're there all the time. So perfection. Now notice uh, Psalm 19 and verse number 7. Psalm 19 and verse number 7. We actually sang this in one of the opening songs. I was struck by it. The law of the Lord is perfect. See, we read about God being a God of law and order. That law is perfect. Converting the soul. There's no law that is on this earth that's been made by man that can convert the soul. It can't happen. Even the law that God gave ancient Israel in its physical orientation could not convert the soul. The only way the soul can be converted is by God's spirit. But the, that law is intended to accomplish that. So it is perfect and it converts the soul. In Deuteronomy chapter 32... Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse number 4. This is what Moses wrote. Proclaim, I proclaim, as he said in verse 3, the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. Now you take human beings. They start out on some project. They're going to invent something. And this is done in the laboratories, and this is done in garages, and it's done in factories. It's done all over the world. Now they have a big assistance with the use of computers nowadays, which they didn't have in the past, and methods of, of, uh, of checking and proving they didn't have then. But what, how many stages do men go through in order to create something? And they finally get it to work. Then they modify it and try to make it work a little bit better. And it, it, the process seems to go on endlessly, doesn't it? And then just as soon as that particular item or that, uh, that uh, invention or something catches on real well, someone else comes along and makes something better. You can't do that with God. His work is perfect to begin with. It can't be improved on. It is the epitome of perfection. And that's what God is. He is perfect. Psalm 18, verse number 30. Psalm 18 and verse number 30. Let's notice what we read here. As for God, his way is perfect. So not only is God perfect and his creation perfect, his way is perfect. Yet human nature being what it is, how many people believe that? They wouldn't be trying to uh, constantly circumvent God's law if they thought his way was perfect. The biggest deception that Satan has ever palmed off on this world is in this modern world is in this modern Christianity where people have been taught all I have to do is just accept Jesus Christ and believe and I'm saved. 
In fact, one man uh, told a young girl who was asking her, asking him about the law of God, he said, I don't have to keep the law of God. I can even sin because I have Christ. That's their view. But you see, his way is also perfect. And Jesus said to strive for that way. Because when you read the Sermon on the Mount, that very last verse here in verse 48 is very poorly translated in the King James Version. You find all of these things that he's describing here. He quotes the Old Testament law, then he shows the New Testament application in the spirit, in the spiritual intent of that law. And then when he gets down here to the very last verse, what does he say? Then, it's future indicative, then if in other words, if you can do all these things that he listed here in these previous chapters in the Sermon on the Mount, then you shall be perfect, just as your Father in Heaven is perfect. Now, who can do those things? Anyone here want to make a claim to perfection? Don't look at me. Well, I can tell you that for sure. You find here covered uh, the whole area of uh, in this fifth chapter of obedience to God. You have uh, the example that he first gives and then tells about the need for obedience. Warns against adultery and murder and uh, divorce and uh, personal vengeance on people. All of these areas are covered. People get mad at someone else and what's the first thing they want to do? Get back at them and get even. I've known people that hold a grudge against someone for years, and then when they finally got a chance to do them in, they'd do it. That's not being perfect, like Jesus said we must be. And uh, Paul even describes here in Romans, the 12th chapter, verse number 12, uh, verse number 2, excuse me, Romans chapter 12 and verse number 2, do not be conformed to this world, because this world's practices are, are what are contrary to God's perfection. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God's will is perfect. Oh, it's difficult for us to see that, isn't it? We let this human nature get the best of us and we forget all about God, don't we? Now, there's another thing that, uh, that God, uh, God has as an attribute that's an in, intrinsic part of him, and that's righteousness. He's righteous. Now, what if God weren't righteous? What if he were a liar and you couldn't take him at his word? And he leads you along to a certain way and you believe him, and all of a sudden he pulls the rug out from underneath you. What kind of a God would that be? Stop and consider, why is God the way he is? What made him this way? That's an unanswerable question. He's always existed. He has no beginning and no end. So how did God ever become like that? When you stop and consider what we are here on this earth, just the opposite, aren't we? Righteousness, 
holy and upright living in accordance with God's standard. The word righteousness, and this, by the way, is from Nelson's Illustrated Bible Dictionary. The word righteousness comes from a root that means straightness. I remember years ago when I was up in Montana, they were having their, uh, I think, centennial. It was in 1989, I think, when Montana had become a state, 1889. So I was up there in 1998 or whatever. I get the mirrors all mixed up. I'm dyslexic when it comes to numbers. <laughs> anyway, uh, I walked by this bookstore and it said, The Righteous Hangman of Montana. I thought, boy, I've got to get that book. And uh, so when I got back here to Eugene, I checked it out of the U of O library. And what had happened is they discovered gold over in western Montana, and all the migrants came in there from Idaho because it was a big flat way to enter that area of the state, pulling wagons and things of this nature, where if you tried to cross the Rockies from the east or those other directions, it was very difficult. So they came up from Idaho and those areas there, and uh, there was a big gold rush up there, and they were finding large amounts of gold there in Alder Gulch, Last Stand Gulch, and some of those places, and they built a little territorial capital called Bannock. Aha, but who moved in? The road agents. They organized into a very highly organized gang of criminals. They waylaid gold trains. They waylaid people. They estimated in the time period before the vigilantes started acting on them, they killed over 200 people, robbing their gold. What finally set it off was a 16-year-old boy was leading a team of mules to take to a nearby town, and one of these road agents demanded the mules, and the boys told him no, and he shot him in the head and killed him immediately drug his body off to the side, and then later on bragged to some of his friends, word got around that he'd killed his boy. Well, a man was out there hunting, and he shot a bird and went out to find the bird, and there he found the body of this boy. Well, to make a long story short, in about a three-month period of time, they hung 65 road agents. They rid Montana, and the man who was the leader of the whole thing was a sheriff. They hung him too. The righteous hangman of Montana. What does righteousness mean? Straightness. It refers to a state that conforms to an authoritative standard. And righteousness is a moral concept. God's character is the definition and source of all righteousness. We talk about character all the time, don't we? What is character? It's the ability to recognize the difference between right and wrong and to always choose the right in opposition to the wrong. Now, how many of us have perfect character when we choose to do otherwise or yield to our uh, impulses of the flesh? In the Old Testament, well, therefore, as I should say here, man's righteousness is defined in terms of God's. That's how you define it. In the Old Testament, the term righteousness is used to define man's relationship with God and with other people. And in the context of relationships, righteous action is action that promotes the peace and well-being of human beings in their relationships to one another. Stop and consider for a moment the Ten Commandments. 
What are the Ten Commandments composed of or comprised of? Two principal rules. Love to God and love to fellow man. So how are you a righteous person? What makes you a righteous person? It depends on what your dealings are, first of all, with God, and that's what the first four commandments cover. And then it depends on your dealings with your fellow man or woman, and that's what the last six cover. So as we see here, it has to do with two areas. It has to do with how one conducts himself in his relationship with God and how, how he conducts himself in relationship with his fellow man. Now let's go back here to the 119th Psalm. Psalm 119 and verse 142. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. Everlasting. It never changes. I was just reading today, and I didn't cut the paper out, clipping out. I think I'll cut it out and save it because I might want to use it sometime in the future. But it's talking about the Episcopalians. And what they're now doing is that they're setting up a special liturgy in their church for homosexuals. Now, I think, you know, if you've been following what's going on in the news, the Episcopalians' church is about ready to split over this issue. And not all Episcopalians will go along with this, but there are a number of them that, you know, you have ministers in this world and in this land today, and I suppose in every single church, who think that righteousness is defined by the present-day standard. One man said recently, we've got to make changes in these things, otherwise we're going to be left out in the cold. There'll, there will be nothing left of us anymore. We've got to change with the times. How contrary to God. His righteousness is everlasting. Never changes. Verse 172. My tongue shall speak your word for all your commandments are righteousness. That's right. Straightness. Psalm 36, verse number 6. Psalm 36 and verse 6. Your, great, your righteousness is like the great mountains. You know, if you, if you drive down the road sometime and you, you, um, you come, and if the road is just right and you come into a certain angle and you see a big range of mountains up there in front of you, it's really awestruck. It just, it just strikes you with eye. Ah. I've seen some in the Rockies where there's just 3,000 feet straight up just like that. It just almost takes your breath. That's the way God's righteousness is. It's like great mountains. Awesome. And it's perfect. God is so righteous. That's his very nature, and that's an intrinsic part of him. What do we read here in the book of Habakkuk? Habakkuk 1 and uh, verse number 13. You are of pure eyes to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. The word look meaning to consider 
or to give attention to. He doesn't give attention to it or consider it. Now, if we're really led by God's Holy Spirit, we'll feel the same way. We'll be repulsed and revolted by it. And Psalm 11, verse number 7, if God himself is very, very righteous, I mean, he's the perfection of righteousness, what do we read about him here in Psalm 11? And we sing this in one of our church hymns, Psalm 11 and verse number 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. He loves it. Because one who is righteous is in union with God. He loves righteousness. All right, another one of God's attributes is that he is absolute. That is to say, he has all authority and power without restraint. That's what I mean by the word absolute. We talk about times in times past about absolute kings. And they had absolute control, and their word meant, word controlled everything. Well, of course, we know that all human kings on this earth are very, very limited. But God is the one who is truly absolute. And here's what we read about some of his uh, absoluteness. Psalm 33 and verse 11, verse 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. That's right. You know, um, he does. Uh, he never says, you know, I am the eternal, I change. He doesn't say that. Now, you can't depend on men, can you? You know, we got a, uh, we got, when, it, when politics comes into play, uh, you have, you have really, usually we have, depending on the country, Two major, two major parties, and one of them is doing everything in their power to get to, 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 to rid, rid the land of the other one. And what's one of the main reasons they want to do it? Because they don't like the laws. And they want to change the laws, and they want to change things the way they think it ought to be. So how long can you depend on these laws? How many times have we seen these laws made by men, and then the next administration comes and changes them just like that? Can you depend on them? You know, God's absolute. He doesn't change. Psalm 119 and verse number 89. Psalm 119, verse number 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Forever been settled. You're not going to go to God and talk him out of anything. Now, he made some allowances for Moses when he was ready to, to uh, destroy the people of Israel, but that wasn't one of the laws in heaven. That was God making that decision himself based on the wickedness of the people. As far as his law is concerned, whatever his word is concerned, that's already settled. You're not going to go and argue about it, change God's mind and get your way. It's his way. And that's just the way it is. Ecclesiastes 3, verse number 14. 
I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. That's right. He's absolute. He's a totality of absoluteness. Going back to the Psalms once again, Psalm 111, verses 7 and 8, we read this. Psalm 111, verses 7 and 8. Here the works of his hands are verity and justice. All his precepts or his commandments are sure. They stand fast forever and ever. They're not going to change. That's why it's important for you as a parent to, to teach your children these things. To make them aware of what's going to regulate their lives. Because they're not, they're not going to make an exception to it. In uh, Proverbs 19, verse number 21. Proverbs 19, verse number 21. There are many plans in man's heart. Or I guess as an authorized version says, many devices. Any angles, many angles they try to figure out, isn't it? Someone's trying to come up with a better plan than the other one to sell to the public. Oh, there are many plans in man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. That's not going to be finagled in such a way that it can be altered and changed. It's irrevocable because God himself is absolute. Now, let's take a look at love. We hear about love all the time, don't we? This is from uh, McClinic and Strong Encyclopedia. They hit the nail right on the head here. Listen to this carefully. <coughs> love is an attachment of the affections to any object accompanied with an ardent desire to promote its happiness. I remember years ago, we used to hear the definition that love was outgoing concern for the other person. Oh, what a contrast to how we usually evaluate love. You get Hollywood's version of it today, and it's a sick feeling you have towards someone else, and that's not the kind of love that, the, that counts. Love is an attachment of the affections to any object accompanied with an ardent desire to promote its happiness. One, by abstaining from all that could prove injurious to it. So if you love someone, you're not going to do anything to injure them. Two, by doing all that call, promote, by doing all that call, promote its welfare, comfort, and interest. Whether it is indifferent to these efforts or whether it appreciates them. That's probably the way God really evaluates us. How often do we, we, how much do we really appreciate what he's done for man? You need to stop and sit down and eat a meal for breakfast. Where'd that come from? You walk into a home and you have food, clothing, and shelter. Where does that come from? Well, it's going to come from your own efforts, that's for sure. God requires that. But if he didn't make it available... You wouldn't get it. 
How many people really appreciate what he does, even though they, they're, they're indifferent? It's, this is practical love in contradistinction from pathological love, which is a sort of self-sensual self-love and a desire for community in compliance with our own feelings. That's human love. We want them to comply with us. And that's how we supposedly have love. Um, in reality, love is something personal emanating from a personal being and so forth. So that gives you a good definition of it. Now let's notice some of the psalms. Well, let's notice the 63rd psalm. Then we'll notice some other passages right in conjunction with this. Psalm 63 and verse number 3. Notice what David wrote here. Your loving kindness is better than life. Now let me ask you this question. Would you rather live without God's loving kindness? How would you like to live without the Holy Spirit? How would you like to go back to your ways that you once were before you knew the truth? Is that what you want? He said God's loving kindness was better than life itself. What he's really saying there, if you didn't have God's loving kindness, it wouldn't be worth living. Why? Because you're only going to live so many years and then like old grandfather's clock, you're going to wear down and that'll be the end. The end, end. Period. Romans 5.8 Romans 5, verse number 8 God demonstrates his own love toward us. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is a case for love where people didn't appreciate it or understand it. They will someday. They certainly didn't understand it in Christ's time and most people don't even understand it today. John 3, verse 16. God so loved this world, he gave his only begotten son. Unappreciated and unrecognized by men. 1 John 3, verse number 1. 1 John 3, verse 1. Behold, and I said a little, little, little while ago as I was reading one of those definitions, it entails... Uh, what God has in mind for human beings. We read here, What manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. We're children of God by means of the begettal of the Holy Spirit. That's what makes us children. And in 1 John 4, verses 8 and 9, He who does not love does not no God. Keep in mind, when we're talking about this love, we're talking about two aspects that God has made known to man. The kind of love and respect we show toward him and the kind of love and respect we show toward the human beings. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this 
the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. You see again, unless God opens your mind to understand the plan of salvation and the purpose that Christ came, you're not going to appreciate it. You may hear it talked about. Drive down the highway and you'll see there are big sign that says, Christ died to save sinners. How many people even knows what that, know what that means? First John 5, 3. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. So that's how it's manifested in our lives. All right, the last point I want to cover is that God is a God of purpose. He doesn't do anything without a reason. That's why the Bible emphasizes in several places, you don't ask God why. You don't challenge him. He doesn't do anything without a reason and a purpose. Now let's take the word purpose. Here's again from McClinic and Strong. The word purpose is commonly used and preferred to the word decree when God's determination, listen carefully to this, God's determination regarding man's relationship to eternity is referred to. In brief, he has a purpose in creating man. The word purpose owes its use to the fact that it is more comprehensive and expresses the idea of intelligent design and therefore more clearly and with less prejudice sets forth a true scope of the divine government. Now, does God have a purpose? Why is man on this earth? Why is man the way he is? Why is man a free moral agent? Why does he have the ability to think and to reason? Why does he have a conscience? Why does he live so many years in the flesh and then he's going to die? Well, let's go back to uh, Psalm 8. Psalm 8 and uh, verses 4 through 6. This is quoted in the New Testament. We read here, verse 3. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. You can't see the stars too well here. When they made that song a number of years ago, the stars are at night are big and bright deep in the heart of Texas. That's exactly what they mean. I've never stood in a place in my life and looked up and saw the Milky Way the way I could see it in Texas. And you know, if you compare our, our Milky Way, it's just a part of one galaxy. And there are millions of those galaxies out there. Why man is so, even the earth and even our, our solar system is just hardly even noticeable in it. When he looks at these things, he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? What did you put him here for? And the son of man that you visit him, that is, you give attention to and care for him. And you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. What animal can even begin to hold a candle to God, to man's intelligence? 
Just the fact that a man has hands and fingers, fingers and as nimble as they are, and what can they do? No other animal has that, not even apes and gorillas and monkeys. They don't have the brain power to know how to use it properly. Although, believe it or not, I was watching some video here a while back where this, these monkeys were mad at this guy and they were picking up sticks and throwing at him. So I guess they can learn too. Anyway, what is man? You know, as Paul said, quotes this very scripture, and then he says, we see not yet all things put under him. Aha, it tells you a whole lot, doesn't it? Notice Matthew 10, verse number 29. Matthew 10, verse number 29. He said, don't, he said in verse 28, don't fear those that kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, meaning the life, the real life, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground from your father's will? Do not fear, therefore. You are more value than many sparrows. I don't know if a single animal is going to go to heaven. When I was a boy, I had a little... Um, wire-haired fox terrier, she got bit by a rattlesnake bite between her eyes and killed her. Her head swelled up by like a football before she died. I was broken-hearted. My mother got me this book, All Dogs Go to Heaven. I read that book and was comforted. What nonsense. Animals were not put here for that purpose. Only men are. And that's why he said, you're worth more, more than many sparrows, or many other creatures for that matter. 1 Corinthians 2, 9. As it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. We don't even know yet the scope of what is going to be involved in that kingdom. It hasn't entered our hearts and minds yet. So the amount of knowledge that we know compared to what God knows, it's minute. We've got to act on what we have, though. Because that minute amount of knowledge that God has given us, we're being held accountable for. Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. This is one of the very important passages that certainly illustrates and this was given to Israel in type, but um, it uh, certainly is true in its antitype. And that is here. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death. Blessing and cursing. Take your choice. It's going to be one or the other. Therefore, choose life. Yeah, we're free moral agents, aren't we? We have to make that choice. We're not forced to. So man was put here to build character and ultimately to be able to enter God's kingdom. Choose a life that both you and your descendants may live. And you can carry that one step further. That refers to salvation as well. 
It's like John wrote here in 1 John 5 and verse 11. 1 John 5 verse 11. This is the testimony that God gives us eternal life. That's the proper translation. Not already hath given us. It's the aorist. And it's just a statement of fact without any time sequence, time, any, any time relationship. And should be translated, this is a testimony that God gives us eternal life. And that life is in his son. So you see, these are just some of the fundamental attributes of God. I'm sure there are many more that if a person wanted to analyze them and take the time to go through them, the list would be quite large. But I can tell you, this should give us enough to think about to realize what God is compared to us and what we should be attempting to achieve. <laughs>